Hello, sports fans, and welcome to Let Me Speak, the show that shares sports' biggest headlines explained, uninterrupted, and maybe a little audacious. I'm Joe Braverman, and today's topics we'll be discussing are a full preview of the MLB season as opening day officially arrives, plus the state of the NBA with only a few days left in the regular season, and breaking down how Kansas overcame the odds and won the Men's College Basketball Championship. It's episode 68 of Let Me Speak, and it starts right now. Hello, everybody. Once again, here on Thursday, April 7th, 2022, the 68th edition of Let Me Speak. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in wherever you are getting this podcast. I want to say happy opening day for all my baseball fans. Happy playoff time for all the basketball fans and uh, hockey fans as well as the NHL is coming up on their playoffs. It's just overall happy Masters weekend, as I say, for all the golf fans out there. It's just there's a ton of sports going on right now. We're going to try and jam pack it all into this one episode. But before we get into the big headlines, as I mentioned last week, we've got a new job position over at WEEI. Uh, just ended training this morning. I've been doing a couple days over at the Greg Hill Show over on WEEI, for those of you who don't know, it's uh, Boston, uh, home of the Red Sox. And you've got personality Greg Hill, Courtney Cox, and former Patriots player Jermaine Wiggins uh, all on a radio show. And I was just happy to uh, sit there, kind of get used to the system of uh, the radio production, how WEEI puts on their radio shows. Uh, got to do a little bit of hands-on, and eventually it's going to lead to a couple of overnight shifts so that I can set some stuff up instead of, you know, answering phone calls. So if at all this week during the Greg Hill Show from 6 to 10 you made a call, you probably heard me on the other line taking your call and putting you uh, through to possibly be on the show. But it's a very exciting time for me personally. I'm really looking forward to getting uh, deeper and deeper and at WEEI. But speaking of sports, I say we get right into it. As I mentioned, it's jam-packed. And today, as we mentioned, opening day for baseball, 14 games on slate right now. Of course, we've got a couple postponements, Red Sox-Yankees, the Twins out in Minnesota got postponed. So not every team is going to be out there. But this weekend is essentially opening weekend. Today's officially opening day. And I thought, why not celebrate it? with just one big giant preview. We'll break down every single division in the MLB, what I personally think could happen at the, you know, before the first of 162 games gets played. So there's still a lot of things that can change. So just put a little asterisk on that. But from what we've seen through spring training and through the off season, you know, uh, pre and post lockout, This is what I think could happen in the MLB. And we start, obviously, in the American League and start with the AL East because I think that division is going to be the most competitive 
division in baseball. I think when you talk about competitive, you look at what happened last year. I mean, you've got Toronto, who some experts are saying are the favorites to win the division, were only out by one game last year. They were 91 and 71, and they finished in fourth, fourth place. I mean, every team except for Baltimore pretty much has a chance to win that division. That's what I think. But experts are saying Toronto could win, and I ultimately kind of agree with them on that side of things. I think they would be my favorite early on just because of all the improvements that they've made. We talked about it a few weeks ago. This is a team that was a top five offense. They were the MLB leader in home runs as a team. You've got Vladimir Guerrero Jr., who was the co-leader in home runs, hitting 48 bombs. And then you bring on uh, some strong pieces like Matt Chapman in a trade from the Oakland Athletics. But there's one bat you really got to watch out for, and that's Dexter Fowler. Now, he's still recovering from a torn ACL. He signed a minor league deal with Toronto, but... If he finds himself healthy and on the Blue Jays major league roster, that could be huge because not only is he a great fielder, he's a strong hitter at the plate. That could be something that no one pays attention to, you know, similar to back when the Red Sox won in 2018, they picked up Steve Pierce. No one really kind of paid attention to that until you got to later on in the year and then in the postseason to ultimately become the World Series MVP. So Fowler could be that player. Uh, for that lineup but not just the lineup for the Blue Jays the starting pitching gets significantly better they did lose uh, the Cy Young winner Robbie Ray but you replace that with probably one of the strongest pitchers last year in Kevin Gosman uh, from the San Francisco Giants you still got Jose Barrios you picked up at the trade deadline you got Hunjin Ryu coming back for a second year and then you picked up Kikuchi from Seattle so I think their starting rotation is pretty much on key, on par to where they were. I do think they have to limit the home runs, though. Not just starting pitching, but the entire uh, rotation through the bullpen and the closer spot. Because they were the bottom 10. They were in uh, top 10 in home runs allowed. So it's just limiting the long ball is what I see for Toronto that would give me a lot more confidence. So I think the Blue Jays, to me, right now, would have to be the AL East favorites coming out of the that division. I think the Red Sox are going to kind of stay where they are in terms of, you know, contention and wild card. You know, they could win the division uh, kind of similar to what we saw last year. I don't think they maybe are the top team in baseball or in the American League, but I think they kind of stay right where they are in terms of a competitive balance. I think the Yankees kind of leave some questions for me in terms of winning the AL East cuz I mean, we saw it last year. They've got no pitching depth uh, behind Garrett Cole. You can't really trust any other starter in that rotation. And we've seen it year after year, how much the lineup has been hurt with all the injuries. Aaron Judge has missed time. Uh, Giancarlo Stanton's missed time. And even Josh Donaldson, who they picked up, has had some injury problems. So where does the offense go? And can they find depth behind Garrett Cole? Uh, can they get into the bullpen? And can a Aroldis Chapman kind of find that control? and be an effective closer that we've seen in years past. And then ultimately, I think the Tampa Bay Rays, they could really take a step back. I know I don't want to count them out because they are still a very strong team. This was the American League champs back in 2020, even though it was a shortened season. And even though they got upset by Boston in the divisional round, they were still uh, the top team in the American League. 
but they, they have a tremendous lineup, but I sort of see it as, you know, Kevin Cash was kind of this revolutionary manager in terms of starting bullpen guys, you know, instead of having a fourth or a fifth starter, you just have a bullpen guy go in there for an inning or two and then have a guy go for five innings, leave it for your bullpen. I think other teams are kind of catching up to sort of that strategy. I think you saw it a little bit with Boston in that division series, um, how they were able to attack uh, when it came to, to bullpen guys, because there's no standout ace for Tampa right now. They don't have a guy where you can point out and say, oh, yeah, that's your opening day starter right there. You could say maybe two or three guys on that side of things. And if the lineup doesn't perform the way they are, I could definitely see them, you know, going back from, you know, winning back-to-back ALEs. Uh, divisions. I think they could go back to the wild card in that kind of contention. That's sort of what I see just because everyone's catching up to what Tampa has sort of invigorated in terms of a new style. Um, so that's what I think for the AL East. For the AL Central, though, I think it's going to be much more entertaining than last year because basically last year was a runaway for uh, the White Sox. I don't see it this season. I think I still think I like Chicago to come out of the Central Division. I mean, I know they lost Carlos Rodon, but they picked up Kendall Graveman for the Astros. They got Joe Kelly. They traded for A.J. Pollock a little bit ago. I just think there's a lot more competition in that division. And as I said a couple weeks ago, uh, Minnesota just had a ton of injuries to deal with last year, a lot of shuffling in the lineup. And I think if they can avoid those kind of injuries, I think they can be in contention, at least for the wild card. Because as we mentioned it, you get Carlos Correa to add on to a strong lineup with Sano and Buxton. And even today, they got another uh, arm in the starting rotation, getting Chris Paddock, and then throwing another bullpen arm in there in Emilio Pagan. So I think Minnesota, this is, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, uh, when Carlos Correa signed with the Twins, is that this was a team minus uh, last year. They had won the Central Division twice uh, the previous two years. So I think if they stay healthy and um, they have the capabilities to be a very strong team and to really challenge uh, the White Sox, that's what I think is just as long as they're healthy. And of course, injuries are a part of the game, but I just want to see, I want to see what Minnesota does, how they sort of counter it. Because I mean, you got your big bat, Miguel Sano was out for most of the year. Now he's back yet probably maybe the best offensive shortstop in uh, Carlos Correa. And you still have a ton of weapons out there for Minnesota. I like the twins to make a big improvement from 2021 to 2022, but a team in that division to really watch out for are the tigers. I think Detroit is going to be better than they've been, but I still think they're a year away just because I think they really got to touch up their starting pitching. I mean, Eduardo Rodriguez, right now is your ace for Detroit. And that just leaves me a little bit skeptical. I mean, there was only one good year. I should say one great year that uh, Erod had during his time with Boston, everything else, he was kind of hovering around the third, fourth starter, and he even spent some time in the bullpen uh, during a couple of postseason runs, but the lineup gets better. You get Tucker Barnhart at your catcher spot. You get a big splash in free agency with Javi Baez. I think the lineup does get better. And I think they do finish above 500. They haven't finished above 500 since 2016. And their 77 wins last year was the most since that time. So I think the Tigers are going to be better. And just watch, watch for them. Watch for them. They're not going to be a runover like they have been in the past. I think they're going to be a lot more competitive 
than they've been in recent years. Maybe not a playoff team, but at least someone, you know, kind of similar last year to the athletics when they got eliminated in the last week, you know, maybe the angels who are competitive in the first half and uh, falter. That's kind of what I'm seeing uh, with Detroit. And that's what I could expect uh, from that division though. I don't really think the guardians or the Royals are going to make any noise in that division. Moving though to the AL West, I think despite losing Carlos Correa, I would put the Astros right now as the favorites in the AL West, just because of, what everyone else has done behind them. I mean, outside of uh, the Seattle Mariners who finished second that di- in that division, I don't really see that division getting any, any better. I mean, you've got Oakland having a whole f- uh, fire sale. You've got the angels who does, who still have Otani on that roster, but still, even with Mike Trout on that roster, they couldn't do anything. And the Rangers, you know, they spend all this money, but they still don't have one of the top, you know, top teams in uh, baseball. That's what I think. I know they picked up uh, Semyon and Corey Seager, but I I just don't really see uh, the Rangers for a couple of years contending. I think the Astros, you know, they still are returning a ton of familiar faces like Alex Bregman. You get Justin Verlander back. Uh, if he's healthy and he's pitched the way that we know, I think he can do uh, some damage. Uh, you got Jose Altuve as well. I just think the Astros, they're my favorites in the West, but I do think this year, because there is an expanded playoffs uh, with one extra team, I think Seattle breaks the drought. They break the drought, and they get themselves to the playoffs just because of how well they played in the second half of the season. Now they've got a full 162. Um, We've seen, we saw the offense in the second half. If they can do it for a full 162, then they can be a very strong team. But I think this is the year Seattle breaks it. Seattle breaks the streak and gets themselves into the playoffs. I could obviously change once we get to the all-star break, but, you know, there's only a matter of time. Because, I mean, they did pick up Robbie Ray. They got the Cy Young winner. So we'll see how they do. Uh, We'll see how the American League, uh, all by themselves, uh, how they're able to do if they replicate the excitement of last year. But moving to the National League, though, the National League East, I think is probably the most wide open of divisions. I it's different from, you know, competitive, as I said, in the AL East, but just, but just because I don't think, you know, all these teams are the top teams in baseball. Like you could say about the AL East, you could say, you could argue that the Yankees, the Rays, the Red Sox and the Blue Jays are the top four teams uh, in not only the American league, but in baseball, you could argue that you can't say that with the NL East, you know, that, you know, even though the Braves are the defending champs and they came out uh, of this division, you can't really say that, you know, any of these teams in this division are a top team in the National League. You just can't. And I mean, I know Atlanta did give up Freddie Freeman, but Ronald Acuna Jr. will come back at some point. That's what everyone's expecting. Uh, you've got Kenley Jansen to solidify a bullpen that had an extremely strong showing during the postseason last year. So, I'm not ruling out Atlanta just yet in that division, um, especially when you look at everything else. The Marlins are still rebuilding. The Nationals are still rebuilding. The Mets can't seem to stay healthy now with Max Scherzer and Jacob deGrom out with injuries. But I think my favorite in this division have to be the Phillies. I think if they can be relatively consistent for a full 162 uh, games, I think it's... I think they can, I think they can win. Cause as I meant, you know, we've mentioned it week after week, all the acquisitions they made, they've got a really strong lineup. Now they've got 
maybe the three of the top 20 hitters possibly in baseball, uh, Bryce Harper, Kyle Schwarber, Nick Castellanos, add that on to uh, Gene Segura um, and all the, all the pieces that Philadelphia has. If they do it for a full 162, you put that along with uh, Bryce Harper, the reigning NL MVP, then this is a team that can do damage if they can win that division. So I think right now on paper, the Phillies would be my favorites to come out of the NL East. But like I said, it's so wide open. I wouldn't be surprised if the Mets won the division or the Braves won the division or the Phillies won the division. Uh, For the Central, though, I think, again, Milwaukee, they've been dominant for many, many years now. I think they should easily win the NL Central, but as we saw last year, the Cardinals weren't that far behind. It took until maybe two or three weeks to lock up that division. Um, I do think St. Louis can make it challenging at times, but I still like uh, Milwaukee to come out of this division. The only question I have is where do they go for catcher? Because, you know, the expectations were Pedro Severino. You sign him from Baltimore, and he's going to be your starting catcher. And then all of a sudden, boom, 80-game suspension for a drug test. Um, So, you know, you still have Christian Yelich, but it's a matter of, you know, uh, chemistry between catcher and pitcher. Because I think uh, the pitching for Milwaukee is one of the best in the baseball when you go through the starting rotation all the way through the bullpen. You you start at the top with the uh, Cy Young winner, Corbin Burns. You go all the way down to the closer, uh, in Josh Hader. So I think the Brewers are one of the more talented teams and I wouldn't be surprised to see him go all the way to the NLCS. That's what I'm thinking. Um, but as I said, the Cardinals, they got hot at the right time and they almost beat the Dodgers in the wild card. So just, you know, that's why you really got to pay attention. And I know everyone's, you know, putting on a swung song for Albert Pujols, who's retiring after this year, returning to the team he won two world series with. Uh, for the Cardinals, but he could make an impact now that the NL has a designated hitter. Last year with the Dodgers, after that trade from the Angels, he hit 254, which isn't great, but 12 home runs, 38 RBIs in 85 games. He can still be effective. He can still be effective, especially when you've got other hitters surrounding him, like Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado. We'll see what St. Louis can do at the start of the year. And then lastly, to the NL West, and I I think this is one you don't even need to spend too much time on it. The Dodgers should be the favorite. They should be the favorite, adding Freddie Freeman to a stacked lineup. Um, The one question I would have is that they did lose Kenley Jansen. You know, he's been their closer for maybe five or six years, if I'm going in my memories correctly. Now you trade for Craig Kimbrell. You get him from the White Sox. And now he's your closer. How effective is he going to be? Because we basically saw it uh, from his postseason run with the Red Sox all the way uh, to last year is that he struggled a little bit. He's kind of lost his control a little bit. Of course, he's got the the heat-seeking missile of a fastball and then a breaking ball. And we've seen uh, for the past couple of years, it's kind of fallen off a little bit. So how effective is he going to be? Or does he continue to be the setup man? I mean, I don't think he's been the closer uh, for a team since um, he left Boston. So uh, he has, he's been a setup man with the Cubs. He was a setup man for the White Sox. What, where is he as the Dodgers? You know, I think that's something Dave Roberts is going to, he's going to let us know early on if Kimbrell is going to be that guy. But how effective is he going to be 
for a Dodgers team. Or maybe the Dodgers just put up 20 runs every single night and don't even need a closer out there. You know, you throw Craig Kimbrough out there and surefire wins. But it's not going to be easy, though, because I don't think the Giants are going to have a major drop-off. And when I say major, I just mean they're probably not going to be the best team in baseball, but they'll still be a very effective team. I expect them to get into the wild card spot or at least contend to that. I mean, you replace Kevin Gosman and Chris Bryant. Uh, you get Carlos Rodon and Jock Peterson. I think the lineup does take a little bit of a hit, but you've still got a lot of familiar faces out there. I like San Francisco to continue their success. And really, ultimately, you know, I don't think, I don't think the Padres are really going to make any noise. I think they're kind of where they are, especially with Tatis out for, I think it was th- two or three months uh, now with a shoulder injury, uh, something like that. So I don't think I think the Padres just struggle in that first half and they're not going to be able to contend. So I think in that division, Dodgers and then Giants. And I think everyone else is kind of just like those other teams. But I want to wrap up this segment with a World Series prediction. Before a first pitch even is thrown, I want to make a prediction. That's what I want to do. And call me crazy for doing it this early on, but no one's, you know, I will be holding accountable to that. I'm not going to bank on it. I'm not going to say I'm going to be rooting for this team and this team because I picked them in the beginning of the year. But I think that it's going to be the Los Angeles Dodgers winning the World Series over the Toronto Blue Jays. I think the Blue Jays get themselves back into the World Series. I think their, you know, their weakness was their pitching. They made improvements on that. Plus, they've got a strong offense as well. And then the Dodgers are the Dodgers. So I think it's going to be L.A. over Toronto in the World Series. But even if that result doesn't happen, it's just great to see baseball getting their season underway starting today. As we see one season get started, we got another season coming to the end, and that is the NBA, the regular season coming to an end Sunday. And we now know all the teams that are going to be in the playoffs. I I include the play-in as playoff teams. We know all 20 teams that will be playing postseason basketball. Now, the seeding in each conference remains the big question. That's uh, we're still trying to figure out, you know, who's going to be the top team in the East. Who's going to be in the play-in for the West? We don't know that for a fact. The last play-in team, three out of the four play-in spots have been clinched. Uh, But that fourth one could be determined after tonight and by this episode airs. You've got Denver with a two-game lead over Minnesota right now. And all the Nuggets have to do is win against Memphis uh, or Minnesota lose against San Antonio. And they'll get the playoff spot, at least the sixth seed, and they'll bump uh, the Timberwolves to the seventh spot in that play-in. But for the purposes of this week, I wanted to talk about uh, the seeding and really look at the teams that um, that are in the playoffs right now and really their position right now and how likely it is that they can make a deep run. Because right now, the middle of the West, middle of the Western Conference is all tight. You've got Phoenix, the clear-cut number one, Memphis, the clear-cut number two, 
after that, three through six is kind of a madhouse right now. I mean, the Warriors, obviously, they've struggled because they've been dealing with a lot of injuries. Draymond Green was out for a little bit of time. Then he comes back, but then Steph Curry gets hurt. Curry is going to be back. But I think there is one team in the West that everyone is sleeping on right now, and that's the Dallas Mavericks. I mean, the Mavericks have to be the second hottest team since the All-Star break uh, behind the Boston Celtics. They've been 15-6, and their record since the All-Star break. And they've got some big wins, you know, again, in Boston, against Milwaukee, and they've beaten Golden State twice. So this is a team that everyone is sleeping on. Everyone's sleeping on, but look at the damage they have done in the last month or so uh, of the NBA season. And I think when you talk about Dallas's success, it starts and ends with Luka Doncic stepping up his game. If you remember at the beginning of the year, as head coach Jason Kidd, who's in his first year, kind of called him out, just saying, like, you know, stop worrying about the refs, stop worrying about calls, just go out there, play basketball, and look what's happened to him. He's fourth in the league in scoring. He's fifth in the league in assists. So Luka has picked up his game. The question is, you know, the pieces around him. That, that's what's been the problem uh, pretty much since Doncic entered the league and got started, was what are the right pieces to surround Luka Doncic. And we're seeing some of those pieces perform really well. Spencer Dinwiddie uh, is great off the bench. Jalen Brunson is very underrated. Dorian Finney-Smith, uh, Dwight Powell, Reggie Bullock. These are all shooters with whom he can find uh, with his improved passing. You've seen Doncic pass the ball extremely well uh, this season, especially when you look at the other night playing against the Pistons. He drove in that little uh, behind the head to the corner. Um, I think those are the pieces that, uh, help Doncic a lot. And I think just the question is when it gets to the postseason, will this carry over? Because they haven't won a playoff series in the Luka Doncic era. Now, granted, they've only made it twice and they've lost to the Clippers twice. Luckily they don't have to play the Clippers, but it's, it's a carryover effect. You know, if the playoffs were the end right now, they'd be playing Utah. And I think they're a lot more talented than Utah. Um, it's just a matter of how much does that talent carry over into the postseason or, you know, is the, is the intensity of the playoffs, you know, kind of shutting down Luka and the rest of the Dallas team. I don't think that's going to happen, though. I think whoever that number five is, you know, whether it's Utah or Denver or Minnesota, I think uh, that the Mavs can – they can get out of it. I think as the four seed or even as the three seed, I'll put it out there. I think Dallas is going to win a playoff series. That's what I think is going to happen. The Mavericks and Luka Doncic will win a playoff series. You can mark me down on that just because I love, I got to see him in person, obviously uh, when they played in Boston and Luka is just another worldly talent. And that team looks uh, really good, especially the way they held Boston defensively. Um, I like Dallas. I like Dallas as to be sort of a sleeper pick uh, in the NBA postseason. If you if you had me do rankings uh, in the Western Conference, I would probably put Dallas, you know, right where they are at number three or at number four behind uh, Phoenix and Memphis. That's what I think. But speaking of Utah, as I mentioned, the Jazz had me earlier because they played really well but they've just struggled in the second half. I mean, it's been a lot of injuries of shuffling in the lineup. Uh, they get a big boost with uh, Boyan Bogdanovich, 
back uh, helping the offense. But I just think overall for the Jazz, it's consistency. I mean, we're not seeing some consistent scoring from Donovan Mitchell. You know, if you want to be like this big-time superstar, and I think he's a star, uh, Donovan Mitchell, but to get sort of a consistent superstar talk, you got to have um, scoring outputs, you know, at these kind of times. And he's just been kind of quiet. You know, he's put in 20 and then 24 and something like that. And obviously you got Rudy Gobert, who all he can do is score it from uh, under the basket. So you always have that to rely on. And I think this is a good defensive team, but I just think consistency in the offense is what it's going to come down to. Obviously Jordan Clarkson is a great six man. He'll probably be the runner up uh, to Tyler hero in the voting uh, for six man of the year. But you know, we just haven't seen the consistent scoring from Clarkson like we saw uh, last year. So I just think that's what it comes down to consistency on the offensive end from this Utah team. Um, you know, they're not, they're not the top team that they were last year uh, when they got the number one seed. Um, they can still make some noise. You know, it just takes one good stretch of games for, uh, for the jazz to get right back into it. Um, so I'm not going to count out the jazz just yet uh, from those rankings. Um, the team behind them though, the Denver nuggets, I, I don't have faith in them either. And I know Jokic is having a tremendous year. I mean, 27 points, 13 rebounds, seven assists, you know, it, people are debating between him and Bede and Giannis for MVP. But the problem with, with I have with Denver and why I can't really bank on success is that Jokic is doing everything. I mean, he's a triple-double machine, but he's just doing too much. You know, it's hard to get scoring or playmaking from the other guys he still has on the floor, like an Aaron Gordon. He's not really a ball handler who creates offense. Uh, Will Barton, kind of in the same uh, boat. Monte Morris, you know, they just don't have the pieces uh, that are playmakers um, outside of Jokic. And that they could get better, and that could change if Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr. are healthy enough to get back onto the court in time for the playoffs. But until then, I just don't see Denver as being a really effective team in the postseason. And I think, you know, because they're in the sixth spot, that is kind of what would put an asterisk on uh, his MVP campaign is just that, you know, you got Giannis who's in the top three right now and B who's in the top four and you got uh, Jokic who's at six. That's what would put me probably third on the MVP voting list. But outside of that, I think outside of Jokic, there just aren't enough playmakers for the Nuggets. And that could change come postseason time. You know, it just takes, as I said, uh, like Utah, one good stretch of games uh, and Denver can be right back in it. Because this was a team that only two years ago in the bubble made the conference finals. And the team they beat isn't even in the playoffs right now. And that's the Lakers. So we'll see what happens with Denver once it gets to uh, postseason time. Hopefully they can clinch a spot tonight over the team that's chasing them right now in Minnesota. And I think for Minnesota, I like them to come out of the play. And I think, you know, my prediction is that Denver will be the sixth seed. Minnesota will be that seventh seed. I think if they, you know, I think I said this a little bit ago, if they can get past the Clippers, because the Clippers right now are that eight spot right now. And the good thing is, you know, for Minnesota is that even if they lose, they'll still get a chance uh, to qualify as the eight spot taking on Phoenix. But the problem I see with Minnesota uh, in terms of a deep playoff run is that they just don't have the experience. I mean, Carl Anthony Towns and D'Angelo Russell, I think they've only made the playoffs like one time in their career. 
Um, I remember Carl Anthony Towns with Wiggins and Butler were out in five games. Uh, D'Angelo Russell were out in five games when he was with Brooklyn. So there's not a ton of playoff experience. You got a lot of young guys in there like Anthony Edwards. I know you got experience uh, in Patrick Beverly, but in terms of, you know, who they're going to face, you know, if they get out of the plane, it will either be the Grizzlies or Italy or the Suns. I don't think they can get past those two teams, but I do, as I said, I like the improvement that uh, Minnesota has made this season and hopefully they can keep that consistency uh, for years to come because, you know, to see a guy like Carl Anthony Towns uh, perform the way he is and then just to drop off all of a sudden, you know, kind of similar to Kevin Garnett in the Minnesota days, strong talent, just never got to the big one until he got traded and went to another team. So that's kind of what I'm seeing in the West right now. I think Minnesota, I'd probably say Minnesota and the Clippers right now would get out of the play in right now at the seven and the eight. I like what the Pelicans and the Spurs have done to come back and basically boot out LeBron and the Lakers uh, makes everyone smile a little bit. Um, but I think with those two teams, that's what I see coming out of the play. And, and overall from the West, I think it's going to be uh, really competitive. I think it's going to be really competitive and we'll get a full breakdown uh, once we get, once we know the playoff matchups uh, starting next week, but shifting from West to East, obviously the story are the top four seeds right now. Um, and who's going to get what, you know, right now, as it stands, it's uh, Miami, Boston, Milwaukee, and Philly in that order. And honestly, this might be a little bit of a hot take, but I kind of see those four teams separating themselves from the field. And I mean the entire field, four through uh, five through 10. I think they've separated themselves. I think Toronto's a great offense, but when it comes to elite lineups, their defense struggles. I mean, you saw it a couple weeks ago when the Celtics came in, they didn't have four of their top players and they got to overtime. Um, and then you have the Chicago Bulls who have a ton of injuries. They've been... Uh, 7 and 14 since the All-Star break. Um, Lonzo Ball not being in the lineup hurts them. And then you've got Cleveland, who basically started so hot in the first half, got all the way up to number two, and now they're uh, at number seven. They're 8 and 14 since the All-Star break. And similar to Minnesota, they're, they're just a little bit too young and inexperienced and then just have injuries. And honestly, I'd even put Brooklyn in that category. I'd put Brooklyn in terms of the field. Not saying that Brooklyn, you know, can't get out of the play-in because we know they're going to be in the play-in. I, I still expect them. It would be a major upset if Cleveland, uh, Atlanta, or Charlotte knocked them out of the play-in situation. Um, but in terms, I'm talking about in terms of going for a deep run, for a championship run. You know, I don't think they can really go that far just because they can't play defense, you know, similar to what the Hornets are going through. They've got a lot of great weapons on offense, but they just can't defend. You know, you got a, you don't really have a center that can defend guys like a Joel Embiid or a Giannis Antetokounmpo, or maybe even a Robert Williams. If you get into uh, the second round and if you can get back, I mean, I'm not going to doubt Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving when they're on the floor, but you know, this is why everyone talks about, you know, the return of Ben Simmons, because they can be that much better with him on the floor. He influences your defense, you know, when he's playing at his peak. So ultimately, I don't see Brooklyn really going that far. And I think they could get bounced in the uh, in the first round, even if they get out of the play. -in. Um, but that's the exciting thing about the NBA is, you know, the teams and you know what the playoffs are going to look like but there's still a whole lot of excitement before the playoffs even get underway.
as I said, it is a jam-packed week of sports, a ton of events going on that have already happened or are going to happen. So we got our headlines, but let's get our sub-headlines in this week's edition of Quick Hits. And we start at the beginning of the week with the men's and women's college basketball national championships being played. You had the women's game on Sunday and then the men's game on Monday. And we start on the women's side with South Carolina dominating UConn last Sunday to win the women's title. I mean, right from the tip, they just were extremely strong against the Huskies. They led 22 to eight after the first quarter. They eventually won 64-49. And what's even more impressive is that you got Aaliyah Boston, who was named National Player of the Year. She didn't even need to have a massive impact on the offensive end. She only scored 11 points and she uh, contributed 16 rebounds. But that's just the way that Don Staley and the South Carolina team adapted to uh, the Huskies is that they knew all the attention was going to Boston. And that opened the door for other players to play really strong, including Destiny Henderson, who scored 26 points on 9 of 20 shooting including three of six from three. And then you throw in uh, the the Gamecocks defense on Paige Beckers, only scoring 14 points and six rebounds. Um, And it just, you know, overpowering and dominant is what I can say about the South Carolina team. I mean, free throw attempts were 26 to four in favor of South Carolina. So all in all, it was just a dominating performance and congrats to the Gamecocks for winning uh, the women's title. But on the men's side of things, you know, you get a blowout in the first game. How about a nice double-digit comeback from the Jayhawks to beat North Carolina to win the national championship? You had the Tar Heels leading by as many as 16, including a 15-point halftime lead. It is the biggest comeback in title game history. And I see just... I really look at North Carolina's side of things from it. And that is that first year head coach Hubert Davis. It didn't even look like he made any mid game adjustments. When you look at the numbers from first half to second half, they dropped. I mean, they shot 36% from the field and 27% from three in the first. But when you go to the second, they only shot 27 and a half percent from the field and 17% from three. And when you look at the game itself, you could just see that North Carolina was relying too much on the three-pointer. They weren't, you know, attacking to the basket and they weren't getting offense elsewhere. And props to that does go to uh, the defense that the Jayhawks brought out uh, when they intensified it in the second half. I mean, 18 points off 13 turnovers, uh, 57.6, the field goal percentage for Kansas in the second half. He had five players score in double figures. That was a game for the history books as I... Kansas, you know, I, I doubted them going into the tournament, um, but they had a strong showing in the Big 12 tournament. Then you get to uh, March Madness. They had the big comeback. At, they had the big comeback against Miami, so it's nothing new to them to come back from a big deficit. So South Carolina and Kansas are your college basketball champions. Speaking of champions, we get our first major in the PGA, and that is Tiger Woods returning to the Masters. I know everyone wants to talk about the Masters themselves, but Tiger Woods is playing. He's going to play. He's already, he's in the middle of his first round right now. I'm looking at it right now. He's currently at even par 
through the first nine holes. So there's still a second half to go here. It's it's 155 here on the East Coast, but I'm just still blown away at the fact that he's here to play. He's at Augusta. He's playing 14 months after nearly having his leg amputated, basically his leg snapping in half, and he's now playing golf. I mean, part of me does uh, does think about like, you know, it's a miracle that he's playing. And it's one of the best comebacks uh, in sports. I still kind of put that a little bit behind Alex Smith. Um, but just hearing hearing him talk, you know, he's still got that drive and determination. He said he believes he can win. Um, that, that's a good mindset to have. I don't think he's really going to be in contention. I wouldn't place my bets on him. But I just want to see, you know, this is day one of 18 holes. I want to see how he does the rest of the way. If he makes the cut. Does he, you know, still play in that third round or is he too sort of say, you know what, I'm just going to call it. I'm not going to be in contention, so I'm just going to walk out. Um, but it's interesting to hear how other golfers have been raving about him uh, in the practice round saying like, oh, he looks great. He looks phenomenal. You know, I just think it's hard for me to say that Tiger will win this tournament because I don't think I don't think he can. I don't think he can. And honestly, it's hard to predict a tournament like this who will win at Augusta. Um, but we're going to give it a shot here. Um, I wouldn't put my money on Hideki Matsuyama, the defending champs, uh, just because he's got a sore neck coming in. I think the two guys I would watch out for is uh, John Rahm and Jordan Spieth. I know Spieth came really, really close on a couple of tournaments uh, last year. And John Rahm, you know, it looked like he was going to be a Masters champ. But then, you know, he had the pandemic hit. Um, so those are the two guys I'd really put on. You know, I do... Remember in the uh, 2020 Masters when they played in November that Dustin Johnson would win. I thought he would win. He did win. So we're going to hope for some more luck here. Put your money, if you want to listen to me, on John Rahm or Jordan Spieth. <laughs> Meanwhile, in football, they have been the quiet sport of the big four. Uh, and one of the big headlines, you know, there's a lot to choose from. You got Stefan Diggs with his extension, but... Uh, the headline for me is Rob Gronkowski. We heard earlier in the week that, quote, he won't commit to another year of playing. And he even went on Jimmy Kimmel uh, last night to promote himself, hosting the uh, Kids' Choice Awards on Nickelodeon. But even Kimmel couldn't pry it out of him. Um, when you look at uh, Gronk and what he did last year for Tampa, um, he, he's just not as effective. You know, physically, he doesn't look the same compared to, you know, his peak years in New England. He can still catch the ball. He's still a matchup nightmare. But in terms of being that unstoppable force, he's kind of drifted away from that just because he's a little bit slower on his route running and he's just taken a ton of hits, not just up top from down below. You know, he's gotten a ton from his knee knees and his hips. And he is like in his mid 30s. So even if he does come back, it's not going to be too much longer that he plays. Um, if he does come back, I do think it's going to be only with Tom Brady and the Buccaneers. I know there were rumors about, you know, Buffalo having an interest because obviously that's where Gronk is from. But I think, you know, for we saw it when Gronk had his initial retirement. And then when Tom Brady signed with Tampa, he came out of retirement to play with the Bucs. Rob Gronkowski is only going to play for one quarterback, and that is Tom Brady. I know he's caught balls from other guys, like when Tom Brady was suspended and he had Jimmy G in there. But... Gronk is only going to catch footballs in an NFL game from Tom Brady. So I would not be surprised if he did come back. I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't come back. 
it's just one of those stories you gotta have to wait and see with the Gronker in terms of his uh, return. Back to baseball, and starting this year, the MLB has allowed an anti-sign-stealing device for pitchers and catchers. I don't know if you can see it right here, but it's basically kind of like this, kind of like a Fitbit. Uh, it's created by the company Pitchcom. They've developed a wrist pad where you can push buttons and seg send signals from a catcher to the pitcher. Now, obviously, MLB is trying to get with the times. They're trying to increase the pace of play. That's why the pitch clock is there. But I think in terms of, you know, keeping the game legitimate, especially when you have uh, things like the Brian Flores situation with the Miami Dolphins, and you had all the cheating scandals with uh, the Astros, the Yankees, and the Red Sox. I think I like this. I like this as a way to eliminate the sign stealing and keeping the game legitimate. Obviously, everyone's got, you know, different ways to um, relay signs and Obviously, you know, cameras and stuff like that were involved in the other scandals, but I like this. You know, I guess I kind of have to uh, see it uh, to uh, really get a good understanding. But just like from what it sounds like, you know, we, we heard an audio recording uh, that can be, you know, for uh, the players that don't speak English. You can put it translated in there. And it's basically, it's kind of like a robotic series just saying like slider outside, you know, that's essentially what it is. And I like it, you know, we'll see uh, how the MLB is able to implement it and if players will be on board. And finally, we go into hockey, uh, not necessarily something on the ice, but a little announcement earlier on, and that is that Ryan Getzloff is going to be retiring from the Anaheim Ducks at age 36 at the end of the year. And honestly, Getzloff is one of those guys where, you know, in my eyes, I wasn't I wasn't a big NHL guy, you know, sort of growing up. Um, but I eventually grew on the game, and Ryan Getzoff was a name I definitely, definitely remember. I mean, he's been the Anaheim captain for, I think, 11 years now. He's played all 17 of his seasons with the Ducks, and he's even the Ducks' all-time leading scorer. I mean, what an accomplished career to top on two Olympic gold medals uh, with Canada and winning a Stanley Cup with Anaheim in 2007. Now, in terms of when that last game is going to be, it looks like it's probably going to be the regular season. Just because you look at the standings, Anaheim's kind of fallen out of that wild card spot. Vegas is kind of running away. You know, I, I think Getzloff is going to be saying so long at the end of the regular season. You know, it'd be great to see one last postseason run uh, for such a strong player. And in my eyes, I think a future Hall of Famer. I think a future NHL Hall of Famer. Um, but I salute Getzlaff on amazing career, and it'll be a shame it'll come at the end of the regular season, but there's definitely nothing to bat an eye at. You know, it's an incredible career for one of the greats, and maybe in the Ducks franchise, the greatest of all time for that franchise. I won't say greatest of all time because that's Wayne Gretzky. So uh, that's that's what I think about Getzlaff's career. Uh, it's going to be, you know, it's it's just telling me how old I am for uh, seeing Ryan Getzlaff uh, hang up his skates. And that is the wrap-up of this week's edition of Quick Hits.
And now, as we always do, let's get local gets underway. And we got all four teams to look at here in the Boston area. And as I said, we're excited for opening day. And that's why we're going to start with the Red Sox. But unfortunately for Red Sox Nation and the Boston fans out there, you're going to have to wait an extra day for opening day. The rain uh, in New York, in the Bronx right now, has postponed the game to tomorrow. It will be a 105 starting time, first pitch between the Yankees and the Red Sox on Friday. So again, mark that down, 105, first pitch Friday, Yankees and Red Sox open their seasons, Nathan Evaldi versus Garrett Cole. And now that I work for the Red Sox radio network, you can hear Joe Castiglione in his 40th season calling Red Sox baseball on WEEI. Just check uh, your local stations. But to talk about the Red Sox and their team expectations, as I said in our first segment, I think they're kind of leveled out to where they are. You know, wild card-esque, possibly uh, division chasing. I wouldn't say they're probably, you know, I wouldn't say they're the favorites to win the division, um, but I do think they are strong playoff contenders. I really do think so. I mean, the team did go 11-8 and eight in spring training. It was a 6-0 and start and a 5-8 and eight finish. Um, so... I'm not really going to take that with a grain of salt. That's not really going to worry me too much. Um, the wor- the thing that worries me about the Red Sox is, you know, just like last year, and that's pitching, you know, the depth that uh, this pitching has. I mean, we know Chris Sale is going to miss the start of the season. He's still got that stress fracture in his rib cage. And uh, my very first training day, we got to hear Chris Sale uh, speak on the Greg Hill show. Uh, and he said, you know, it's getting better. It's getting better, but he's not going to travel with the team. Uh, so right now your starting rotation is Nathan Evaldi, Nick Pavetta, Tanner Houck, Michael Walker, and Rich Hill. Now on paper, on paper, it looks like a good starting rotation. And we've seen what Evaldi has been able to do the past few years. We saw Pavetta have strong uh, performances, but then it's those back three that really, you know, it, it makes me think. You've got Tanner Houck who bounced into the bullpen once Chris Sale came back last season. You have Michael Walker, who's been kind of inconsistent. He's shown flashes of uh, being great. Uh, and then you got Rich Hill, who's in his 40s. <laughs> That's, that speaks for itself. So it's just the starting rotation without Chris Sale. How well do they perform? You know, can they? Because I, I think when you saw Tanner Houkin starts, I think he was good. But did Alex Cora tell him, hey, we're going to put you in the bullpen. You're going to be our long innings guy. Um, kind of similar to what he did for Garrett Whitlock last year. Um, was he going to put him in that situation? And then did he tell him, hey, you're going back to the starting role? Because he looked good as a starter. I'm not afraid to admit it. Tanner Houck looked like one of the stronger pitchers the Red Sox had. I mean, the way his slider roll, everyone compared it, basically a right-handed Chris Sale. You know, I'm not going to, you know, the mechanics look just like that way, but I'm not going to say he's going to be Chris Sale. But I just want to see, what this rotation does without Chris sale. And then when you get uh, away from the rotation, I think you have to look at Alex Cora to what he does in the bullpen. Because I mean, you have your best pitcher from last year in Garrett Whitlock. Do you put him in the closer spot or do you put him in as a setup man? Do you put Matt Barnes back in the closer spot who basically lost it after the all-star break? I mean, Barnes, you couldn't even pitch him in the postseason unless it was a runaway game. That's how bad Barnes struggled. But then you've got, you know, little guys like Hansel Robles, Austin Davis, who you picked up from the trade deadline, 
uh, Jake Diekman on a couple one-year deals. But I think the most interesting name has to be Cutter Crawford. I think Cutter Crawford is someone that Red Sox Nation is really going to start getting accustomed to, you know, who made the opening day roster. He's been basically the top pitching prospects uh, in the Red Sox farm system for a couple of years now. So, you know, how well does he do in the majors? Is he going to be in the Garrett Whitlock role? You know, it's just Alex Cora solidifying the roles in the bullpen. Who's going to be the closer? Who's going to be the setup guy? Who's going to be the guy uh, when your starter can't go, you know, four or five innings? Is that going to be Crawford? Is that going to be Diekman? We don't know that. We need to know where where Alex Cora's mind's at, and we probably won't know until maybe the first two weeks of the season to figure out, you know, who's going to pitch in what situations. And obviously they could change by the time, you know, August and September rolls around. But for the time being, you know, we don't know what in the world the bullpen looks like. We don't know who's pitching when, and I'm sure we'll get some clarity uh, as the season goes along. But those are the questions. The things we know for sure, at least in my eyes, is that their defense is already 10 times better than they were last year. This is a team that was second to last in the entire majors in fielding percentage and errors. Now you bring on a familiar face in Jackie Bradley Jr. You know he is basically made for defense, and it's all about, you know, what does his bat do? (laughs) That's really the only question with Bradley is you know he can defend, but how well is he in the lineup? Or does it get shadowed by uh, your your, your big bats in that lineup? But another great defender they brought on, obviously, Trevor Story. Now, I don't know, you know, Trevor Story, obviously, you know, he wouldn't have come to Boston if he didn't, you know, if he didn't want to play second base, he wouldn't have come. That's just, is essentially what I'm trying to say. So I think the fact that Trevor Story is comfortable being at second base does uh, say a lot because obviously you got Xander Bogarts uh, playing at the shortstop position. Um, and obviously Rafael Devers is still at third base. That's going to be a hot commodity for errors. Um, but in terms of the the rest of the field, I think with Story and Bradley alone now uh, in the lineup and out in the field, I think your defense does get better. Maybe probably not going to say the the best defense or the best fielding team uh, in the American League or in the majors, but they're definitely going to be better than second to last, especially uh, with the company that they were in. But I just know regardless of, you know, whether they perform well or they perform poor, Uh, the first series against the Yankees. I'm just very excited to see that baseball is uh, back. Uh, Baseball is going to get underway. I'm very excited for that. But as I said, Red Sox getting underway, another team wrapping up their season, and that's the Celtics. Everyone, everyone in the city of Boston who follows the Celtics wants to talk about this team and really – their expectations for the playoffs. Cause we know for sure it's going to be a top four seat. We know that for a fact. Now they ain't going to get no lay, no lower than fourth, but right now, the way it is, they're currently number two in the East. And if it were to end, they would be playing the winner of the seven versus eight. They'd be playing either Cleveland or Brooklyn. And as much as I said, you know, Brooklyn might not be a real deep title contender. That's still a team I don't want to see. I don't want to see that at all. And, you know, this team did struggle uh, in the past couple of games uh, for a couple of weeks. I mean, that Miami game uh, at night was really, that was a really tough game. You know, you had your chances, you had your chances. 
Um, but they got back to their winning ways. Uh, I mean, they had a blowout against the Wizards in their final home game. Then last night, they took out Chicago basically in the first five minutes. Um, and then now they just, they're going to end their regular season tonight in Milwaukee and then in Memphis. And the debate now, uh, as the regular season comes to the end, is what seed would Celtics fans be most comfortable in? And in my eyes, I am totally content right now at this moment. I would be content if they are the number two seed or the number three seed, because I think the chances of, you know, you basically Brooklyn has to win that first game in order to be that seventh spot. You know, if, if things were to end, but Brooklyn is still tied with Atlanta in record. So it just takes one loss from Brooklyn and one win from Atlanta and Brooklyn gets themselves into the nine or 10 spot. And then you avoid them entirely. You leave that to Miami at the number one spot uh, for the number three seed. Right now it's slated that it would be Chicago. And you just saw last night what they did against Chicago. And that was a relatively healthy uh, Bulls team. I know they didn't have ball, as I mentioned, and they still don't have uh, Alex Caruso. Um, but you know, you can beat, uh Chicago you know you can do that you don't know that you can beat Toronto because you're gonna have to go up to Canada and since we've heard reports that the whole team you know isn't vaccinated there might be one or two players who aren't able to play that's why you don't want to see the Raptors that's essentially two teams you don't want to see in the first round you don't want to see Brooklyn and you don't want to see Toronto everyone else uh who's in the spot that you could potentially play you know you can beat You've dominated Charlotte, Atlanta, Cleveland, Chicago. You know you've dominated those teams. It's it's Brooklyn, at least in my eyes, that's that gets me a little weary. And then uh, having to play Toronto and having to go on the road up to Canada where the mandate uh, for the COVID vaccine is still out there. Um, but in terms of positions, even if they would have to put, play Brooklyn, the two or the three seed would be totally uh, fine with me. That's what I would see. You know, hopefully they don't, you know, lose these next two games and get themselves into fourth. Um, you know, maybe, you know, I'm not saying the Celtics are going to do this, but maybe, you know, they don't really put a ton of effort in tonight's game against Milwaukee and they kind of tell the Bucs, hey, why don't you have the number two seed? Because, I mean, the Celtics and the Bucs are separated by half a game. Um, and, I mean, you could you could be seeing them. Uh, if you go that far, you know, because right now it would be Milwaukee against Chicago. Um, and if you beat, if you were the number two and you won your series, you two are going to be playing each other. But I mean, you've got two hot teams like Milwaukee and Brooklyn. You might see one of them get out. That'd be good for you if you're uh, on the Celtics. Um, but I'll just say, I want to see how the Celtics team, uh, how they attack it, how they really attack these next two games. Cause you know, if their playoff position is locked up after tonight's game against the Bucks, then I don't really see, you know, a whole lot of playing time for the starters uh, when they take on the Grizzlies. Because, I mean, the Grizzlies have their spot locked up, too. They know they're the number two seed in the West. The Celtics, we're not sure. I mean, they could go to number four because, I mean, they're, two, they're a half game up on Milwaukee and Philly. So you just got to hope that Philly struggles enough where you can kind of take your foot off the gas. Um, but in terms of what they've been doing on the floor, I think the offense, you know, a lot more confidence in them uh, compared to last week. 
Jalen Brown's put in 25 or more points in 10 straight games. I think that's huge. And then you've got the scoring ability of Jason Tatum. You've got Peyton Pritchard and Derek White coming out of their shooting slumps. And then obviously Daniel Tice, who's been replacing Rob Williams at that uh, center spot. We saw Coach Udoka try uh, with the starting lineup to go Grant Williams, Al, Al Horford. It looks like he's going to go Al Horford, Daniel Tice at the 4-5. And, you know, we're not going to say Daniel Tice is Robert Williams. He's not that lockdown center guy, but he's effective enough. You know, he's a good – he can stretch the floor uh, with his shooting as compared to Robert Williams. He can shoot those corner threes. He can pull up. He can hit those floaters. Uh, it's just, you know, when it gets to defense down low, you know, I think it's like a 60, 40 kind of thing where you might have, you know, compared to Robert Williams, where it's like an 80, 20 kind of success rate. Um, but I do like what Tice has done in replacing Robert Williams. I still have confidence that this Celtics team can at least get past the first round, depending on who they play. And hopefully it's not the Raptors or the Nets, but we'll have to see. We'll know by Sunday. Uh, and even by the time uh, this week, when we get our new ep- episode, uh, who the Celtics will be playing in the postseason. What we don't know, however, is where the Bruins are going to seed. And the Bruins right now are scratching and clawing to get to the top of the Atlantic standings right now. They're in the middle of a four-game road trip. They've won three of their last four. Granted, the last game was a really bad showing against Detroit. But I mean, granted, that is to injuries. But Looking at the standings right now, they hold the tiebreaker over the Lightning, who they are playing Friday night. Essentially, it's a battle for the third spot in the Atlantic Division. And then after that, you're only a few points behind Toronto, so you could get as high as second. And I think that has to be brought into consideration now that you're dealing with injuries. You know, we haven't seen David Pasternak. He didn't play against Detroit. Uh, Hampus Lindholm had to leave the game. Tred and Frederick didn't play. So I think now is the time if you're Bruce Cassidy to really start think about seeding because they are firmly locked into the playoffs. Okay. They're not getting any lower than the wild card. There's no way Columbus or Detroit are going to catch them, at least in my eyes. Um, and as I said, they could get as high as the second seed. So essentially you have to make a decision of, of um, home ice. Do you really think home ice is as impactful as you think it is you know because if you're tampa bay right now you're the two-time stanley cup champs and you're thinking you need every advantage you got so you know they're gonna fight like heck to uh try and get that home ice in the playoffs to at least get to that uh number two spot uh for the for the bruins you think it's huge because i mean the garden is always rocking you always know that's going to be a home ice advantage um but You have to look at it, though, now with the injuries. You know, you're not going to rush David Pasternak, and you could see that when you don't have him in the lineup, or even if he's in there not at full strength uh, in the games in Detroit and in Columbus, that this this offense and the way they attack the net just isn't the same. You know, you can have Marshan and Bergeron and Taylor Hall and uh, uh, Smith, Craig Smith in there, and Jake DeBrus. You can have all those guys in there. But David Pasternak is your guy. He's your goal scorer. He's your shot taker. He's basically the offense that has been uh, carrying the Bruins pretty much since uh, the calendar switched to 2022. So if you don't have Pasternak at full strength in the playoffs, then, you know, this team has no chance of going far. So I think when you have to look at it from a management side of things and a coaching side of things, you know, just get David Pasternak as healthy 
as possible. Because we've seen teams go from the wild card and get all the way to the Stanley Cup final. So I'm not saying it's totally out of the question. But if Pasternak is not healthy, there's no way they make it that far. So that's going to be, I think, injuries and just getting healthy. Because there's only, you know, maybe less than a month to play in the NHL. So just keep your guys healthy. We've seen them at full strength, especially after the trade deadline, is that this team can be effective and can make some noise in the Stanley Cup playoffs. But take note of Jeremy Swayman struggling. He's something to take notice of. It's nothing to get nervous about. But, I mean, he did have a 3.10 goals against average in the month of March. You know, this is still a young guy. How is he going to adapt to the pressure of the postseason? We don't know that for a fact. We, we don't know. Okay? So, it's just something to take notice of. Just take notice of it. And uh, before we get into uh, the Patriots side of things to end it, uh, just going back to the Celtics real quick. Jason Tatum, Al Horford are resting. Jason Tatum has a knee injury. Al Horford has a back injury. They are not going to play against Milwaukee. So maybe that's a sign saying, hey, Milwaukee, number two seed, all yours. Take it. Go ahead. Go ahead. But a team that is looking for seeding and for success in general have been the Patriots pretty much since Tom Brady left. And everyone's been very frustrated about how quiet they've been uh, during the offseason and in free agency. Well, it looks like they finally made a considerable move. Maybe not a big splash, but not a nothing move. The Patriots grabbing a wide receiver from the Dolphins. And if you missed it earlier in the week, Devontae Parker is now a member of the New England Patriots. The Patriots getting Parker plus a fifth-round pick in this year's draft only for a 2023 third-round pick. And I think that's a steal because we've seen – Parker on the field that when he's healthy he has a lot of potential and I say that very very strictly is that when healthy he's a reliable target I mean look at what he did in 2019 he's a former thousand yard receiver he got 72 balls in nine touchdowns but why did he do that because he played in all 16 games we haven't seen that at all uh either since that time or before that time so if you get Devontae Parker playing a full season, healthy, a full 17 games, then you can say this is a good move. But you just can't say that just yet because he's not not a game-changing wide receiver. He's a good wide receiver, but you would still put him in that category of maybe like a Nelson Aguilar or a Kendrick Bourne as a a receiver that you know, like, you know, whatever matchup. You can go deep. You can go uh, shallow cross. Um, He's not that guy. Like, he can be effective, but he's just in the category, you know, he's not in the elite status. And that's really what I think the Patriots have to look for. That's really what they got to look for, is an elite wide receiver. That's that's all it is. All it is. So um, that's that's just what I that's just what I see uh, with this trade. I like the trade. As I said, not a big splash, but it's not a terrible move. And the fact that you only had to give up a third-round pick in uh, next year's draft, and I think there was uh, another fifth-rounder in there or something like that. And obviously, you knew the Dolphins were going to make some kind of move after getting Tyreek Hill, uh, putting putting Hill there with Jalen Waddell and Kosicki and all the weapons that they have. You knew someone was going to be on the move. And Parker, just because he hasn't been healthy, is uh, unfortunately that guy for Miami. But it's, I still think a wide receiver is needed. I still think getting one at least in the draft or, you know, maybe another discounted one in free agency. I think that's, 
I think that's important. I still think that's important for uh, this Patriots team, but there's still a long way to go before uh, the Patriots kick off their season, but the Red Sox are starting theirs. The Celtics and Bruins are ending theirs. Should be nothing but excitement in the city of Boston. Lastly, as we always do to end our show, we look at our LOL moment of the week. And before we get into this week's moment, I did mention we had our ultimate LOL bracket finally came to an end on Sunday. Thank you, everyone who voted on the Instagram platform at let me speak underscore official. Checking out our stories and voting them and also voting on my page as well at Joe Braverman on Instagram. And I want to congratulate Tom Brady for tossing the Lombardi Trophy during the Bucks Super Bowl boat parade, he has won the ultimate LOL bracket. And, you know, we got to get 64 more or maybe just a few more, and we got to hopefully Tom Brady can defend his crown or maybe there's going to be someone else uh, who takes over that top spot and becomes that ultimate moment, uh, just like this person who last Sunday definitely made some noise for something he's not really accustomed to doing. So congrats to Tom Brady. But this week's LOL moment of the week goes to Pat McAfee, the former All-Pro NFL punter for the Indianapolis Colts. Now, I'm just going to preface this, that I did not know about this story until uh, there was a uh, little notification that I had on Sunday, but I did not know that Pat McAfee is now in the wrestling world. He's apparently with WWE. He's apparently a commentator uh, during SmackDown and video of him went viral. And it, it's kind of weird that he's a commentator because he actually had a match at WrestleMania uh, against this guy, Austin Theory, I think was his name. And he came out with the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders. I mean, First off, if there's a personality in the sports world that best suits the WWE or professional wrestling sports entertainment, it's Pat McAfee. I mean, this guy is an entertainment juggernaut right now. He's got his own show where Aaron Rodgers comes on every single week. Um, he's got his own podcast. I mean, Pat McAfee has just been everywhere in the world of entertainment. And looking at some of the highlights from the, from, uh, the match he had, he looked really good. I mean, he leapt from the mat all the way up to the top rope and uh, did like a, a, a suplex or something like that, I think, off the top rope. Um, and then early, he did another thing where he did a front flip off the top rope and he got some height. So my props to McAfee, and he actually ended up winning the match. And then Vince McMahon, of all people, comes in and he wants to face him and it's that just that normal bad guy thing where they say, Oh, you're all weak and stuff like that. Let me take advantage of you and win. And Vince McMahon, who by the way, has to be in like his mid seventies, like takes off his shirt. He wrestles him. And you know, that bad guy outside interference thing helps him win. But the moment comes uh, where Pat McAfee makes the LOL moment when stone cold Steve Austin hits the ring 
after the encounter between McMahon and McAfee. And I don't care if you're a wrestling fan or not. You know that Stone Cold Steve Austin is one of the top. You know, he's a, he's a name. He's a billboard. You know, even if you don't like wrestling, you know the name Stone Cold Steve, Steve Austin. He comes out. He does his thing. He stuns the Austin theory guy. And then he stuns uh, Vince McMahon as he always, you know, he's become famous for that. <laughs> he's become famous for uh, that move and hitting it basically on the boss, I guess they call it. But the moment comes when Stone Cold invites uh, Pat McAfee back into the ring and he does the thing, you know, smashing the beers, drinking them. And then Austin decides to stun him. He performs the stunner. And I don't think it's the moment itself. It's the reaction afterwards that's uh, really great. I mean, when you look at videos of the past, you know that, you know, The Rock was a great uh, seller of the Stone Cold uh, stunner. Uh, guys like that. I think Razor Ramon had a really good one, or I think Scott Hall, the late great Scott Hall, RIP. Um, but this stunner, like when you see it, like he he takes it and then he spits the beer and it goes all the way up. He's basically spitting it until he hits the mat. And that that's just what made it funny is, you know, you have those guys who are like, who do it really quickly. But the fact that he sells it so good, I mean, Everyone has their different way of selling it, as I mentioned. But the way McAfee sold this one was just, it, it made me laugh out loud so much. I actually laughed out loud watching the video of just like, oh my gosh, he takes it, you know, as he's falling the beer spitting out. And what's funnier is that, you know, while Stone Cold's doing his usual celebration, they go back to McAfee. And while he's laid out and he's kind of like sort of knocked out, you know, stuff like that, he's still pouring some beer uh, into his mouth so pat mcafee is just an entertainment icon right now for what he's doing so pat mcafee for giving us all a good chuckle at wrestlemania for taking that stone cold stunner like a champ you have earned yourself into this week's lol moment of the week So that wraps it up for this edition of Let Me Speak. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. If you're watching us on YouTube or listening to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, make sure, as always, you follow our other pages on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. All you got to do is search Let Me Speak Podcast. And remember, as always, if you got a point you got to get across, just let the whole world know. Shut up and let me speak.